Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening. Do look around the site. We have over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. Also, check out my new website that allows you to tune in to the new Hackberry Radio. Just go to hackberryhouseofchosun.com and take a look and a listen. I'm reading today from a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's volume one of a three-volume set, a modernized abridgment of the Puritan classic by William Gurnall, the English Bible scholar and pastor who died in 1679. Today, a word of caution to those who desire a heavenly prize. First, in getting earthly things. If heaven and heavenly things are the prize you wrestle for, then you will have a holy deportment of heart, even in your secular pursuits. Take every precaution that you do not do business like the rest of the world. If you, as a Christian, resort to the world's ways in your drive for material possessions, you cost yourself two valuable commodities, the glory of God and the happiness of your soul. Many a dear servant of God has rejected wealth or fame because the price was too high. Moses tossed aside all the privileges of court because he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Abraham refused gifts from the king of Sodom for fear someone might accuse him of covetousness or self-interest. Every child of God should be as conscientious as this. Never forget, nothing you can get on earth is worth exchanging for God's glory or your own peace of mind. A true saint will be zealous in his daily affairs, but all his energies will be tuned to heaven While his hands are busy at his tasks, his heart and head will be taken up with higher matters, how to please God, how to grow in grace, enjoy more intimate fellowship with Christ. The carnal man, in contrast, spends long, hard hours in his shop and then goes home and spends half the night plotting how to get ahead in business. He sweats in the shop but grows cold in the prayer closet. No weather is bad enough to keep him from market, but if the road to church is a little slippery or there's a chill in the air, he begs his leave from the services. No inconvenience is too great if he fattens his pocket, but let the preacher keep him a minute or two past the hour and he complains. In short, at work he keeps his eyes on the till. At church he keeps them on his watch. If anything I have said speaks to you, go quickly to God and petition for a thorough change of heart. And then, secondly, in using earthly things. Perhaps you have a heavenly spirit in getting earthly things, but do you have the same spirit when you use them? The good wrestler uses his earthly estate for heavenly ends. What do you do with the fruits of your labor? Do you bestow them on your own overstuffed paunch, your hawks, your hounds, or do you share them with the poor? If you are a prominent member of your community, how do you use your influence, for good 
or for evil, for selfish or selfless ends. And to pray for things without a heavenly end in mind is close to idolatry. Use your material wealth with a holy fear, dear saint, lest earth should rob heaven and your temporal enjoyments endanger your heavenly interests. As Job sanctified his children by offering a sacrifice out of fear that they might have sinned, and so the Christian must continually sanctify his earthly enjoyments by prayer. In this way, he will be delivered from the snare of them. Thirdly, in keeping earthly things. The Christian must practice the same indifference in keeping his earthly possessions as he did in getting them. God never signs the title of anything over to us, but merely gives us things to keep in trust. All will be left behind when he calls us home. If he sees fit to let us keep them until then, we bless and thank him for his generosity. And if he takes them away sooner, we bless him still. God never intended, by his providence in bringing Moses to Pharaoh's court, to leave him there in worldly pomp and grandeur. A carnal heart would have reasoned that Moses could best help his people, who were slaves under Pharaoh, by using his position and and power to influence the king, perhaps even by aspiring to the throne. But when Moses renounced his place of privilege, his faith and self-denial were made more eminently conspicuous. It is for this obedient faith that Moses is given such honorable mention in the New Testament. Sometimes God lavishes us with things, not so we can hang on to them, but so we will have something to let go of, to show our love for him. Was there anything better in the whole world Mary could have done with her precious oil than to anoint her Lord? What enterprise will pay more lasting dividends than to invest what you possess in the cause of Christ? Christian, keep a loose grip on the material possessions you value most highly. Be ready at a moment's notice to throw them overboard, rather than risk the shipwreck of your faith. You cannot labor for heavenly possessions if your hands and heart are loaded down with earthly pursuits. In the end, if you save anything, it will be your soul, your interest in Christ and heaven. If you should lose all your worldly goods, you should still be able to say with Jacob, I have enough. And then a practical note on the folly of pursuing earthly things. Number one, earthly things are unnecessary. Sometimes it is indispensable only when it cannot be replaced by any other thing. Uh, Though Satan often convinces us to the contrary, there is nothing we enjoy that Christ cannot make provision for, should it be taken away. In heaven there will be light, but no sun, a rich feast and and yet no meat, glorious robes and yet no clothes. Uh, Not one thing will be missing, yet none of the earthly things we esteem so highly will be there. But you do not have to wait for heaven to be recompensed. You may be under great physical affliction here, your health taken away. God will provide better comfort than if you had your health. You may be so insignificant by the world's standards that no one even knows you exist. Nevertheless, 
In the midst of your obscurity, you may be receiving an excellent report in heaven by virtue of your faith. You may be so poor that you do not have a dime in your pocket. God can make you rich in his grace. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Suppose you do die penniless. What will it matter at all? But suppose you die graceless. Heaven and heavenly things are the kind that cannot be recompensed by anything else. Do not let Satan distract you with baubles and toys. While he is entertaining you with his clever illusions, his other hand is in your treasure, robbing you of that which is irreplaceable. It is more necessary to be saved than to be. Better not to be than to have a being in hell. Secondly, earthly things are uncertain. No matter how hard you work for material gain, there is no guarantee of success. Men have been doing business for thousands of years, yet no one has come up with a fail-proof plan for getting rich. How few carry away the prize in the world's lottery. Most have only disillusionment and bitter memories for their trouble. But now for heaven and the things of heaven, the plan is quite clearly laid out in the Bible. As many as walk according to this rule, peace beyond them, Galatians 6.16. If anyone pursues heavenly things and does not get them, it's because he did not follow God's instruction in the right manner. If you want heaven, but you also want your sins, do not expect to succeed. You must part company with one or the other. If you will not let go of your sins, God will have to let go of you. If you want heaven but insist on purchasing it with your own righteousness, you'll fall short of the price. You are like the near kinsman in Ruth, who wanted to buy Elimelech's land, but was not willing to marry Ruth, as the law required. All the good you do, all the duties you perform, are admirable if they are acts of love that follow your act of repentance. But if you offer them as the price you are willing to pay for heaven, God will not deal with you. You must close with Christ and him alone or lose the whole bargain. How can you be sure you will gain heaven and eternal life? Only be persuaded to renounce your lusts and throw away any confidence in your own righteousness and then run to Christ and present yourself to him in need of salvation. Long for him more than for life itself. He is already standing outside your heart's door, calling you by name, and has promised not to turn away any who come to him with a contrite heart. And then, though you continue to dwell on earth, your eternal life is as certain as if you had already taken up residence in that holy city. How sad that so few will trade their uncertain hopes in this life for the promise of heaven. What account can be given for this except the desperate atheism of men's hearts? They cannot be convinced to believe what the Scripture says. May God open the eyes of the unbelieving world so people can see that the things of the Spirit are real and not fictitious. Faith and faith alone can make the invisible visible to them. Thirdly, earthly things are uninsurable. Though God may have blessed you with wealth, you could be rich today and poor tomorrow. 
You could be in good health when you go to bed, but seized by pangs of illness or death before morning. Can you take enough precautions to guarantee that nothing will happen to wipe out your fortune? Can you become rich enough to buy good health or add one day to the span of your years? Scripture compares the world's population to a mighty ocean. Kings and rulers sit upon this ocean. As a ship floats upon the waves, so their lives float upon the favor of the multitude. And what kind of security is there in riding the waves? For a while they will be lifted up to the heavens, only to fall down again into the deep. David knew how fickle the world's preferments are. We have ten parts in the king, said the men of Israel. And in the very next verse, the tide had already turned. We have no part in David. Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Thus was David tossed up and down, almost in the same breath. But heaven is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Christ is an abiding portion which changes not. His graces and comforts are sure waters that spring up into eternal life. The quail that were food for the Israelites' greed soon ceased, but the rock that was drink for their faith followed them. This rock is Christ. You may lose every temporal comfort, including family and friends, but if your treasure is secure in Christ, you are a rich man still. Christ will come to you in your darkest hour with peace and a promise. Fear not death nor devils. I will stay right here beside you until you breathe your last breath. My angels are waiting with me. As soon as your soul is breathed out of your body, they will carry it to heaven and lay it in the bosom of my love. Then I will nourish you with those eternal joys that my blood has purchased and my love has perfected for you. Fourthly, earthly things are unsatisfying. No matter how much we have of this world's goods, it will never be enough. A man's wealth often breeds misery, but never contentment. How foolish to suppose it ever could. Our spirits are immaterial. They will not be satisfied with the perishable delights of flesh and blood. The earthly prizes we strive to win are far inferior to the nature of man. Therefore, we must look far beyond them if we want to be blessed, even to God himself, who is the Father of spirits. The possessions God allows us to have are intended for our use, not our enjoyment. Trying to squeeze something out of them that was never in them in the first place is a futile, futile endeavor. A cow's udders, gently pressed, will yield sweet milk, nourishing and refreshing. Applying more and more pressure will not produce greater quantities of milk. We lose the good of material things by expecting too much from them. Those who try hardest to please themselves with earthly goods find the least satisfaction in them. All our frustrations could be easily avoided if we would turn away from things and look to Christ for happiness. Here is what you can expect when you do. First, the guilt of your sins, all gone. Guilt is the pin that constantly pricks our joy. When Christ takes away your sins, he also takes the guilt. Second, your nature renewed and sanctified. Holiness is simply the creature restored to the state of health, which God intended 
when he created him. And when is a man more at ease than when he is healthy? Third, adoption into the family of God. Surely this cannot help but make you happy to be the son or daughter of so great a king. Fourth, an eternal inheritance with Christ. We cannot begin to comprehend what this means in terms of everlasting joy. Our present conceptions of heaven are no more like heaven itself than an artist's painting of the sun is like the orb in the sky. But we can cling to the promise that what God has prepared for us is beyond our most extravagant dream. And then, finally, a a final word about our heavenly prize. Finally, in this chapter, I should say. Find out for yourself whether you are devoted to heavenly or earthly things. You cannot pursue both. Earthly things are like trash, which not only does not nourish, but takes away the appetite from that which would. Heavenly things have no appeal for one corrupted by such trash. Only when you come to the end of yourself, like the prodigal, will you make the judgment that heavenly things are better. Then you will know bread is better fare than husks, and your father's house a better place to dwell than with hogs in the field. If you will have heaven, you must have Christ, who is all in all. And if Christ, you must accept his service as well as his sacrifice. No holiness, no happiness. Take the whole offer or take nothing. One can compare holiness and happiness to those sisters, Leah and Rachel. On the surface, happiness, like Rachel, seems more desirable. Even a carnal heart will fall in love with that. But holiness, like Leah, is the elder and has a special beauty also, though in this life it appears at some disadvantage. The eyes red from tears of repentance, the face furrowed with the work of mortification. Here is heaven's law. The younger sister cannot be bestowed before the elder. We cannot enjoy fair Rachel, heaven and happiness, until we first embrace Leah, holiness, with all her demanding duties of repentance and mortification. Will you live by this law? Marry Christ and his grace. Then serve a hard apprenticeship in temptations both of prosperity and adversity. Endure the heat of the one and the cold of the other. If you will be patient, at last the fairer sister will be handed over to you. This is the only way to win the prize of heavenly things. Well, um, that was the end of a chapter called Second Consideration, The Nature of the War. In the next chapter, next time, the third consideration, a second exhortation to be armed. I know you're being blessed by Mr. Gernal. I hope that you'll join us then. Thank you so much for being here. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.